Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, my monthly interview series where I have the privilege of sitting down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry. Uh, Today, as an old-school Raven Software fanboy, going back to the heretic days, I'm very thrilled to be joined by one of the the co-founders of Raven Software, Brian Raffel. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's great to be here, and uh, I'm excited to uh, talk with you and go over some of the Old stories from Raven and, and where we're at today. Yeah, your studio's officially celebrating its 30 year anniversary. So, congratulations on that. Um, and you, there's your you. uh, yeah, well earned. I mean, 30 years in the games industry and it's such a young industry. That's uh, that's a lot. And, you know, you guys uh, are now, of course, in the driver's seat, the lead development developer on the campaign of Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War which is out in November, coming up here very soon when this airs. And, you know, that's kind of actually, I wanted to start there with you, and then we'll, we'll kind of work back through time as well. So, you know, sure. again, for me, as somebody who's really appreciated Raven's work for so long, it's, it's, uh, it's been a little disheartening for me that you guys haven't made, this is your first wholly original game that you guys have led uh, mm-hmm. since Singularity in 2010. So, I mean, not to at all diminish the the incredible amounts of support work and and the remaster work and things you've done with the Call of Duty franchise over the last ten years, but does it it does it? How's the vibe at the studio of of just being back in the driver's seat of an original project again? Well, it's been really great. You know, we have worked uh, quite a few years on the Call of Duty franchise, and we love the franchise, and um, we've worked with Treyarch for quite a few years. Um, and so when we got this opportunity, we were, we were super pumped about it. And we had uh, our, our uh, creative director, Dan Bondrack, had come up with a great uh, story that fit right into the Call of Duty um, Black Ops universe. And so it was a great match to be partnered up with Treyarch and get our chance to lead a, a campaign, which um, we had done a lot of work on different campaigns over the years. But this one was one directed by Dan and our team. And, and uh, partnering with Treyarch is always you know, it's, it's always a great opportunity. We we have worked with them in so many different ways, but uh, now to be next to them has been hugely successful and, and fun to do. A lot of great fun. So, uh, speaking, I mean, you you mentioned getting to to really just drive the story here. So, am I? Is it fair to guess that your favorite of the Black Ops games is Black Ops One, since Cold War is a direct sequel to that? Well, definitely it has been. You know, that was the first game we started helping on uh, was Treyarch and Black Ops 1. So it's kind of a, uh, makes a lot of sense that that's where we uh, pick up our first, uh, you know, char- char- charge with Black Ops and, and partnering with Treyarch was where we started. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting time uh, in, in the timeline and uh, one that we felt was right for lots of opportunities for some of the things we wanted to do. So it's, it's been a great fit. What was what was most memorable for you about Black Ops One when you look back on it? You know, just uh, just the 
it was very clever to, to us. I mean, it was uh, the, the dark stories that people didn't hear, you know, and that's that's always the, the most interesting for all of us. And, you know, if we go back to we look at our Soldier of Fortune days. I mean, it kind of taps a little bit into those as well. But um, just the black ops, you know, it just it brought back a lot of like what's going on behind the scenes. That's always uh, been the intriguing part for us. Call of Duty comes out like clockwork every year. Obviously, it's a multi-studio effort as it is this year between uh, you and, and Treyarch. But uh, this year, especially with with COVID and the uh, the requirement to now do as much from home as possible, how mm-hmm. like how has been how has it been making you know? Hey, congratulations, Raven! You're back in the driver's seat of your own of your own project. Now you got to figure it all out from home. So how how has the team adapted and what have sort of what have been some of the the challenges and, and maybe some of the sort of the, like the real learnings and victories for you guys during this process? Well, I'm really proud of everybody that's worked on this project, um, you know, and it's Raven and Treyarch. But we also have Beanox and High Moon and, and uh, Shanghai, Activision Shanghai have all been pitching in as well. But for our IT systems at Activision and our our, our own studios. I mean, we made a very quick pivot probably on March 20th is the day I remember to go work from home. And it was within just a few days or, or that first week that everyone was up and running. Um, and in true fashion, I mean, I've always said, you know, mentality of this industry is you move or die. And so we, it's just another one of those hurdles that was thrown in front of us. But it took a while, but we really got productive and we really got in sync. You know, luckily we've had, you know, 10 years of working with Treyarch and, uh, you know, been part of Activision for almost 25 years. So knowing everybody and having all these connections over the years was really helpful in us just picking up kind of where we left off. And I feel like, you know, we were able to still deliver the vision of the game we were looking for. And, and uh, so a lot of pride there. And just, uh, I've always loved the, the new challenges. So this has been uh one I never saw coming. I thought we'd be out of the office for like three days or something like that. So right. just continue to go on and on. But we came to a point where it's like we can't ever not we can't ever try to go back, even if we had a possibility. We just you know didn't want to risk a, a second wave or whatever. So right. no, it's been great. You know, um, with all the all the support we've had from Activision and um, within our studios, I'm really proud of all the teams. How has it been getting, uh, the, you know, this, the studio has gotten to play with the next-gen consoles for this the first time in Call of Duty, obviously. Is, have your, have your uh, programmers and artists been, been having a ball playing around with the new tech? Yeah, no, it's always, um, we've been in a couple of those, you know, over the years. But, uh, you know, this one's an exciting one. And uh, it's nice. Every time you get these upgrades, it's just like you just start, your mind just gets blown on all the new th- next things you can do and how you can take everything up to the next level. and. I guess that's what I always love about this industry is, as we were kind of talking about before, it's like Raven started with 64 colors and pixels and every you know year or a couple of years, there's just this shift of new opportunities and, and new ways to make the game look and play even better. So uh, we're always excited about when uh, the new console generations. Now, Black Ops is a series. So I'm a gamer. I'm at the point in my, I'm getting... You know, I'm 40 now, so it's like I, I'm not as much in the in the multiplayer scene with with Call of Duty. It's, I think it's for me, it's a young man's game. But uh, I love the. I've always been a, a campaign guy, and Black Ops has mm-hmm. has sort of ebbed and flowed with with how uh, how much focus it's put on the campaign. Obviously, with Cold War here, you guys are placing a 
major emphasis on it, not to discount multiplayer, mm -hmm. but for you, what right. you know, you've you've worked on a ton of these over the years and you've played even more of them. What to you uh, are the keys to making a great Call of Duty campaign? Because we get one pretty much every year on the campaign side. What makes the great ones great? Well, I think, you know, uh, so every, if every time is a new way to reinvent it, it's always going to be high action. It's going to have a lot of twists. I think it's really important to, to world hop, and at least what, what we're thinking. And not every Call of Duty has done that. But, um, and I feel... You know, this era has opened up a lot of doors of opportunities to make it interesting. It's always got to, you know, you have your gadgets, you have your, your plot twists and, and, you know, a lot of action and just the different missions and so forth um, are always a lot of fun. It's it's like a, you know, always like a James Bond movie or, or a, you, know, um, some, you know, high action Mission Impossible or something. But it's always trying to find new ways to uh, delight the fans in ways they haven't anticipated before, you know, um, and uh, this is no exception. We've got a lot of great uh, things in, in, in store for them. So again, we mentioned earlier, 30th anniversary of the studio. So did you ever, so 30 years ago, when you get started, did you ever think that you'd still be here now in 2020? You know, it's, I was just thinking about, I mean, I get that asked a lot of times and, you know, it's kind of like, you're so faith, your head's down on each project and you're, you move from project to project, like lining one up and finish one and lining one up and finish one and growing. And you get so caught up in just the mechanics of the process, you know, next thing you look up, it's 10 years has gone by, you know? Um, and, uh, like, like this year, just trying to get through COVID and trying to get the, you know, campaigns, right. You just making sure all the resources are lined up, et cetera. You just get so pulled in. I guess it's one of those things you, you do what you're passionate about in, in the time, doesn't seem to factor in. Um, but yeah, no, I never anticipated. I think when we first started, you know, we just wanted to get one game published. That was all we, you could, you know, just to be published was like, that was, that was the victory lap right there. But yeah, it just kind of kept going and going and going. And, and I mean, it's a good thing. It's a good thing problem to have. I mean, you know, it's uh, we've been fortunate enough that we were aligned with a lot of the right partners and had a lot of the right decisions to continue to be here. I mean, it only takes one poor choice to, have a studio go down. So I've been very fortunate there. Yeah, I'm gonna we're gonna talk about a couple of those partners in a second, but I'm, I'm sort of curious. You know, you and you and your brother Steve co-founded the studio. Uh, you guys did mm -hmm. a lot of the art in the early days on the games. And so, what what were your original career aspirations? I mean, were were you gaming as a kid and thinking, man, I'd love to make games someday, or or kind of what was what was the original well, uh, vision for Brian Raffle? Well, my brother and I grew up in a big family of eight of us total. And um, so we made a lot of games on our own as kids, you know, just playing, you know, didn't have game systems at the time or internet. So you were outside playing and our parents often kicked us outside anyway. So uh, we'd come up with all kinds of inventive games and so forth. And our brother Steve and I were both artists. Um, and so that was a passion. And so like uh, Brown the Amiga came out in like 84, 85, whatever. Um, my brother and I both started teaching ourselves how to do art, you know, on it. And I, my background is uh, I was a high school art teacher and coach. So uh, that was right up my alley and uh, a lot of passion for my brother as well with the art. So we started teaching ourselves how to do computer art. And we started to notice that our art was right on par with a lot of the art we saw in the industry at that time, which was very, you know, very new. And there was no schools. There was no, 
YouTube to teach us anything. It was all, right. um, you know, brute force, just my brother and I talking to each other. And that's where Steve really shined. My brother, he was, uh, he'd always come up with these techniques to make things look better. And then uh, we kept trying to outdo each other with our art. And I think that really helped push us. But we actually started to do this for, uh, first we started to do a Dungeon and Dragons module. Uh, we played a lot of Dungeon and Dragons in college and um, a lot of passion there for, you know, artists to do art and, and be creative. So we started that, but then we, we saw our artwork. We said, hey, we can we can do a, a small computer game, you know. And um, my brother had a roommate at the time who was a, a programmer. I always joke to call him a programmer because he, was, he wasn't quite sure, but it, he was confident he could make this all work. Um, and so what he told us he was going to do was we would do a graph. Let's say at that time, you only could look north, south, east, and west. You didn't have the smooth scrolling like you do today. And um, he said, well, just show me what you're going to see looking north, south, east, west, and then I'll just bring files up and just plop them in front. And we're like, okay, well, that makes sense, I guess. And we started, uh, remember this, we sat down with a little piece of graph paper and we're going around like an hour later, like, wait, we're at like 400 files already. There's no way that that's all going to fit on a disk, you know, one megabyte disk. And um, so we realized we were a little bit in trouble. That was our first gotcha there, like, oh, crap. So um, fortunately, we were hanging out with uh, at a mega store in Janesville, Wisconsin, and uh, the owner there, and we were friends. And he said he knew about this uh, this programmer in, in Janesville, who, or Whitewater, who was working in the Amiga at a very low level. So we met with this programmer, and uh, we'd already done our artwork where we did, you know, he did like a 30, 20, 10 foot distance of everything. And so uh, we met with him, really bright guy, and uh, he took the art home and he took it and cut, chopped it in pieces. And then he would bring the pieces up rather than whole files. And so yeah. literally it's in a week, he had us walking through, um, you know, a dungeon. So that was our first game, Black Crypt on the Amiga. So that's yeah. really the, the genesis where we got started. Um, and so that was really kind of how we we got our, 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 our foot going. But then we, um, so we worked for about a year then on a demo. My brother, Steve, and I did all the sound effects, all the design all the art, uh, the programming is, we had the two programmers and then our music was done by uh, our friend, Kevin Childer. Um, but, uh, it was, it was a definite learning experience, how to make noises and put them together and, and, and all that. So we put a demo together and it was, uh, and we put it on, a, uh, on a, on 10 discs. Maybe we had picked 10 publishers we wanted to work with. We mailed them out on a Saturday after an all nighter. And then we had breakfast. We're like, wow, you know, uh, everyone has told us we wouldn't hear from them in like two or three months. Don't call us. We'll call you. So we're like, oh, maybe in three months we'll get you know an offer or something like that. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? And then I got home from work on Tuesday and my wife told me that we had six or seven calls, you know, wow. uh, right away. You know, so it was pretty great. Two of the companies didn't even open them because they had this, you know, they didn't want to have, they had this, uh, you know, that was their, their policy. So we were pretty excited. Like, so I got flown to LA uh, for the first time. I, first time I flew in my whole life, which is I was 29 already. So, oh wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I was a high school art teacher. I didn't need to fly anywhere. I didn't have a lot of money. Um, so we went to LA for the first time. Met with some big studios, and we finally signed up with a, a studio to do Black Crypt and then the Amiga. So that was really how it all started. But it was quite a whirlwind experience. That. You know, of course, my family all like were cheering for us, but you know, they're like, "Yeah, you're going to be a game company." Yeah, sure you are. You know, it's like 
rock stars. You know, oh, we're going to be rock stars. We've got a band. You know, so everyone was pretty jazzed when they when they saw that. And I think the cool experience for when it was published was my brother Dave is a scientist and he was in Paris. And my mom had been there visiting him. And uh, they went to a store and they saw our game, Black Crypt, in the store. It was like the number one or two game. So that was a kind of a cool moment for, for me. Oh, that's awesome. So at what, who picks the name Raven Software? And at what point do you, do you say, I'm quitting my job as an as a art teacher oh. and that's it, I'm, I'm diving in full time to this? Yeah, no, it was because uh, I was coaching cross country and track and teaching and I had you know, a young child, my first uh, son, Kelson. And um, so it was pretty scary. But um, uh, we um, first, once we, we signed the first contract, uh, we got enough money to at least get some new computers and get the game out. But uh, it took a couple years. So it took until like 93 before I could actually quit uh, coaching but um, and teaching. But it was a very tough experience. Um, we got the money for us on the first game. We got an office. And then we signed up uh, for another one. And that's when money started coming. Then, then that's when the real advance money would come. But my brother Steve was nice enough to um, let me work as a teacher half time and as a, as a you know the Raven um, working at Raven. Um, so I was I was working a lot of hours, and I was lucky my wife was patient with me to allow me to coach and teach and then work at Raven. But a lot of times the teaching, I had the summer off or I'd have Christmas off, so I'd take my computer to my brother's house and we'd be, we'd be working. The name Raven came from our Dungeons and Dragons experience. Um, you know, you don't, we look, we were, we're going to make this game. We had no idea about anything. I just know my, my brother did not want a techie like Microsoft or techie kind of name. He wanted yeah. us because we were making a role-playing game. Black Crypt was a fantasy role play, and that was our that was our passion. We thought, you know, we only thought one step ahead of us. But Raven was the name of one of our friends, D and D characters, who was kind of a, he was a character to begin with, <laughs> our friend. But also, it's, he had this character. He almost was, you know, this almost became him. You know, <laughs> and uh, we had a lot of fun with it. We thought, well, Raven that makes a lot of sense. Fantasy, this, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And so uh, uh, we thought, let's do that. And that was kind of the genesis of where it all kind of started at that point. Oh, that's cool. Uh, now, you mentioned partners earlier. I mean, a pivotal moment in Raven's history, I don't think there's any, I doubt you'd argue it, is you meet the id Software guys, who most people don't know yeah. that id, id Software started. You guys are in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, you're not on mm -hmm. the coasts like, like a lot of game developers and, and major publishers are. Right. In Madison, it, id, the id guys were in Madison as well. so. How do you first meet up and connect with them? It's, you know, weird, weird serendipity, whatever. Um, we put out an ad because when we were working, we worked on the Amiga for our first game. And then everyone was saying, well, no, the PC is where you need to be. So we put an ad out for a PC game programmer, you know, which at the time didn't really exist. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is what, 91 or something like that. And uh, John Romero's girlfriend, Beth saw it and told him about it. And ironically, we were like a mile away from them. And um, it was a real key moment in, our, you know, for my whole gaming life was, so he said, hey, let's meet. I said, okay, well, come on over. So we had this, my brother had this little small office in a drywall company basement. And so in comes John Carmack and Romero and like Tom Hall and Adrian Carmack, 
And uh, it's like, whoa, look at these guys, you know. And, and um, right away, you could tell, like, John Carmack was pretty brilliant. I mean, he, they looked at our art. They loved our artwork. Um, and I think they're really impressed with what we were working. And then they asked us to come and see what they were doing. And, oh, my God, I felt like I'd gone to heaven looking at what they had. They had this big townhouse, and they had, like, stacks of soda, and they had, like, you know, a fax machine, which I thought, wow, they really are a business. They have a fax machine, which is, you know, at the time, it was, like, that was pretty cool if you had a fax machine. Yeah. Uh, but they were just really impressed the hell out of us because they really had their act together. Obviously, they're working on Commander Keen and. Um, ironically, they were starting to work on Wolfenstein, and that was so we saw that before anything Dorian else did, and we're like, "Holy cow, how are you doing that moving back? You know the whole was growing and um so we became friends and uh hanging out, we go to movies once in a while or dinner, and they looked at, like I said, they liked our artwork and um as soon as winter hit though, they left <laughs> that was one thing I guess it was Tom all that talked him into going to UW you know because you know, be Madison. Madison is a very cool city. It's got lakes and a lot of great culture and a lot of good things going for it. But you know, when it hit winter, a lot of those guys who are from Louisiana said, "No, I'm not going to uh, work here." So they moved back to Texas. But we, we stayed friends. Um, and I even uh, kind of the funny story was I, I said to John Carmack, "I'm like, wow, how do you do that scrolling? Did you teach our programmers how to do that?" He goes, "Oh yeah, no problem. It's really simple." And so I sent my our programmers there and they came back with headaches and they said there's no way we can do this this is <laughs> insane so that's when uh but when they decided to work on on you know the first doom license they called us and another studio uh and they published so they're they're always pretty smart and aggressive um and so they gave us their, their tech and they funded us to do heretic and they funded another company to do I think it was strife it was called but Heretic was very that. successful. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, um, we jumped into Hexen. And, and so it was a great, I, I, I always say, it, I have to be very candid about this, that we wouldn't be here without id Software. I mean, they they were the guys that made it, made Raven happen. You know, they kept us going. And that was the thing I loved about Activision. They were the first ones to see that they had to partner us with id Tech and, and when we started moving forward. Um, so... Like I said, without it, we we wouldn't have been here. Wow, I mean, I I mean, and Heretics the game. That's how I became a fan, became aware of, and a fan of Raven. I, I remember, you know, this this interview is about you, but a quick anecdote about me for sure. you. Yeah, of course. I remember the first time I heard about Heretic because again, there's no internet, there's no. It's just like basically no. word of mouth with your friends and maybe a gaming magazine. You know, it's a friend of mine told me. Oh, have you seen the medieval doom? And I and I remember I literally didn't believe him. Like you're just you're just pulling yeah. my chain. There's no medieval doom. And then I don't yeah. know if it must have been your shareware version or something. But when I finally tried Heretic, I was completely <laughs> hooked. I adore that game to this day. You, know, you you could you could fly, which you of course couldn't do in yeah. Doom. Uh, you could turn people into chickens. You, you had the great weapons like the Phoenix Rod. So what? Oh yeah. You, know, you mentioned Heretic, but where where did Heretic come from? Did did it did it come? Was it you had the engine, you had the tech from Id and and John, and and you thought, okay, what can we do with this? Uh, what what's the Heretic origin story? So the big story there is they wanted to work with us. They wanted us to do a fantasy game. It didn't start out to be a Doom fantasy. We started typical D and D players when we first started. 
we started designing the game. We got super deep into all this, you know, your strength and wisdom and all, you know, the usual stuff. And of course, it's again, credit John Carmack here. He's like, just do it like Doom, you know, and make it, but make, you know, but add, add the fantasy flavor and add some other stuff. So um, we thought, okay, great. So we started, we wanted to have our own look. So our, our palette is much more colorful and, and, and things yeah. like that. So the fun part about that was my brother and I did pretty much all the features and weapons we had. Uh, also Brian Pelletier at that time. There wasn't much of it, but it was a lot of fun because I could make levels and I could do the art because the, the editor was amazingly cool. And I have to call out Chris Reinhardt. He was one of our, our programs at the time. Kind of a funny story about the flying. Again, it's so many, so true for so many stories that there's these happy accidents. Well, Chris came up with the idea of moving the horizon line just up and up and down. It wasn't it wasn't like a real calculation of flying. It was a it was a hat. And <laughs> wow, it looked like we were really flying. And so that was like that was such a, a big event for us and that really gave us a unique flavor. But um also just uh you know the chicken uh morpho of them or whatever. That, that was a lot of fun too. Yeah. So that was um that was kind of our, our niche that we created, you know, a a, a close cousin to Doom, but our own flavor. And of course, obviously uh, John Romero was a, was a great uh, producer for us and and uh, creative director. He he helped uh, us drive that as well. I mean, many times at two or three o'clock in the morning, he'd be up playing. We'd be talking, and you know, it was definitely a there was no time limit on when you worked in those days. It was quite like twenty four seven. Another funny story about Romero was uh, he came and he bought us a refrigerator for our office, which we were like so. Like you bought a refrigerator for us? It was a big one, and so we could keep our photos in there. Like I said, people don't understand what game development was like back then. But it was like five guys in a basement, and you know, you go to Walgreens or you go to Sam's Club and get like you know cases of Coke and chips, and you just sat at your desk all day. So um, those were fun days. Those were a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you remember D Wango, but uh, I, I got so good. Yeah, I got so good at Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got so good at Heretic Deathmatch that people on my Dwango server, which was the Phoenix server at the time, they would, they would refuse to play me in Heretic because oh. they, they knew. <laughs> that's, how, that's how much cool. I was playing Heretic and how much I loved it, but so do you still keep in touch with with Romero or Carmack or any of the old id guys? Um, you know, I, I feel like it's been a while, to be honest. I mean, John is and they've all gone in such different directions. Um, I really have not, to be honest. I mean, you know, they've kind of all gone their own ways. And, and it's kind of sad, really. Um, 
And uh, I think once we became part of Activision, I think that's kind of when we started kind of falling off. I feel mm-hmm. um, this is because we got so busy and they went different directions, but I, I don't think there's any reason other than just, unfortunately, we just got all busy. Yeah, um, no, it happens. I do, I do have a retirement plan, though. Uh, I, when, I was lucky enough when, you know, John Romero was kind enough to give me this really big Doom poster, and I was able to get both Carmack and Romero's signature on it. So that's my retirement plan when I put it on eBay <laughs> when I retired. There you go. <laughs> but but uh, it was kind of cool. With Heretic, too, another cool thing was, you know, BW Madison, and that's where I went, and that's but my sister was working there, and her, her, she was also a scientist. and. She came in, and all of her all of her colleague colleagues were playing Heretic, and they couldn't believe that uh, it was her brothers that that made that. So that was another one of those kind of neat moments that you just kind of reflect on as you as you look back. Oh, that's awesome! I love that. So <clears throat> next came Hexen, the sequel to Heretic, mm-hmm. technically Hexen Beyond yeah. Heretic. Now, at the time, like yeah. I remember that game Hexen being somewhat revolutionary in that it was blending that Doom style that that Romero and and Carmack kind of pushed you towards with with Heretic, mm-hmm. but you brought back in those RPG elements like uh, from Black Crypt, things like distinct player classes, melee weapons. Mm-hmm. So did did uh, did Hexen end up doing better than Heretic? Or like I'm sort of curious because it they sort of branched off into their own you know separate franchises in a sense. Yeah, I think I think what happened was that Heretic did really well, obviously, and 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 I think when GT Interactive got involved, I think Hexen was primed to was ready more ready for for you know instant release right away into the bigger market. So I think that maybe made it, made it more successful. But no, it was our, we had uh, Eric Beesman and I was sat down with Romero and and uh, we you know we all talked about what could be the next thing, and you know John right away was on on board with classes, and and then uh, we just all kind of worked from there. John, uh, like I said, John Romero was very much involved with both Heretic and Hexen, um, and uh, you know Carmack as well. They would always, you know, they they were had a vested interest, so of course they were very much involved. Yeah. But, um, it was a a really nice relationship, and we all just kind of riffed off each other, and we just kept playing the game and come up with new ideas. And um, I think the the, the uh, one of the things I think we also came up we came up with was the um, Tomb of Power was good for. You know, Heretic and Hexen. That was another thing that added some flavor to it, but it also gave the weapons some different uh, playability, particularly in multiplayer. So uh, right. that was kind of the fun part. And the melee weapons are always a bit of a challenge. I think the one thing that was weird, the different about Hexen was every class had their own unique weapons, and then you had that one the weapon at the end where you get the pieces and stuff. So that made for a, a lot of uh, uniqueness to the classes, I think. And at that time, that was very different. So then you jump, uh, next comes the jump to 3D with, with Hexen 2. You guys are the first people outside of id, again, to use uh, John's technology, yeah. the, the Quake engine. Um, does it, when you're, when you're the first person to be, first team to be using you know, a, a, an engine like that out, you know, that you didn't make, yeah. do you get, is it sort of strange to be trying to adapt it for your needs, or do you do you get extra attention from John Carmack to help sort well, of yeah, I mean, morph it into what you need it to be? Carmack's always been great on that. I mean, like I said, the first time we worked on Heretic, I mean, you see the editor and things like that, and you know, you get that that special attention from John, both Johns, 
uh, and this was no exception. Uh, I still remember the day being there in Texas and my brother and I like looking at the Quake editor and like finally can have models in the world and things like that, you know, and, and uh, 3D. And um, it takes a while to learn how to use it though, too. I, I remember one time I, I made a map, I was making maps and I, I, it was running for 24 hours and it was still processing. And so Carmack said he looked at it. And what I did is I had one little pixel in the fire, like a like an iron in the fire of this pit. And so that was causing it to get hung up. But so we had to learn through, you know, success and failures, like what, what the engine was capable of. We pushed it sometimes and sometimes John would add things if we requested or would fix things to make them a little easier or we improve the editor. But it was already in pretty good shape when we obviously when we got it for you know Heretic X and two, it was a challenge to go to three D um, for sure. But it was uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, using models and and having now you know just like I said, every time you improve on the technology, also you got more colors, or now you can you can have floors and ceilings instead of just walls, and you know stuff like that. Um, the lighting opportunities were different. Some could flash, you know, they could move, you know, so putting them on spells maybe and things. So all those are just what keep the game industry fun. It's just the new ways that you can improve the worlds and make it look better or try new things. You know, obviously multiplayer was kind of a cool thing when we first started them with them on Heretic. And now, you know, it just keeps getting better. So uh, it took a while to learn how to really utilize that engine, though. I mean, um, it just was such a, a, a paradigm shift that. It was a little. It was a little more than adding more colors and, and things like that. You just had to yeah. really try to utilize it better. But that was fun working on Hexen Two for that for sure. Are we uh, Are we ever going to get another Heretic or Hexen and a reboot something? Uh, you know, there's it's never say never. All I can say. <laughs> Not for anybody else watching. I, I just need to know. <laughs> we, get, we get a lot of requests for it for sure, and of course, I'd always love to do it. But uh, you know, that's a uh, that's for another day, I guess. We'll see. Yeah, T- tough to make a case for uh, for anything else when you're already working on the biggest franchise on the planet, which we'll circle back to here oh, in yeah. a minute. But um, yeah, so True during Hexen 2's development, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, was that that was the acquisition uh, when you when uh, Activision acquired you? So and of course right. you're still with Activision today. The studio is still owned by Activision. Now, obviously, right. the late '90s were very different in the in the gaming industry, as you've already pointed out, than than they are in 2020. But was that a yeah. major decision for you and your brother and and the team to to sell to a corporate parent to a publisher like that or? Or was it a pretty easy decision at the time? I'm sort of just curious how you thought about it then and and how you see it now. Well, at the time, I mean, one of the things that we uh, struggled with when we started our studio, um, you know, I have no business background. I was a high school art teacher and my brother was a a silkscreen printer. So we weren't like, you know, very savvy with the business end. Um, And we had had some trials and tribulations in the first uh, six, seven years were a couple opportunities we could have maybe gone under, you know, like um, just different facts, facts happen, different things happen, you know, you run out of money or, you know, we had to kind of start putting our, our uh, payroll on our credit cards and, and things like that. And, you know, we really wanted to focus on making games. That's all we really cared about was making the creative and, and um, not necessarily uh, worried about like, and I was I was doing payroll. I was talking with the attorneys. I was doing contracts. I was flying out, making the deals, and and also trying to 
raise a family and run a business. So it was it was crazy. And we said we also saw that there was consolidation going on in the industry, and we felt this would be best for us to look for a, a partner that we could become you know, part part of. So we actually put ourselves on the market. Um, we got a, a mergers and acquisition firm to work with us, and we looked around uh, quite a bit. And Activision was the easy choice. I mean, I met Bobby uh, Kotick and Brian Kelly, his partner, and they just, they could just tell that they just got it. You know, they were the ones who connected the dots that we need to get you guys the id tech. You guys are good at it. You got to make sure you are connected. And um, they just seemed so on top of it, you know, and of course, now you look back and they were. So, and they're doing, and they were, you know, Bobby has been amazing to get us where we are today. And um, they were just, they were, they just seemed like the perfect fit. So we made the decision to go with them. And, uh, and especially after working with them on Hexen 2, they were great to work with. And um, so, yeah, I, I, probably the best decision I ever made, you know, was going with them. Uh, Soldier of Fortune, another big hit for you guys, also based yeah. off of id tech. But you guys put quite a spin on it yourselves. Not that you didn't before, but really the definitive feature, I think is fair to say, with Soldier Fortune was the ghoul technology that allowed for individual limb dismemberment. This is a, a military video game based on a magazine. Uh, it was yep. very intentionally violent. Uh, <laughs> I'm sort of curious, uh, Could you do you think that game could even get greenlit now? Um, I don't even want to speculate on that. But at the <laughs> time, it was, it wasn't, there was no... Let me just be clear. There was no goal to make this. Let's make it super violent. It wasn't. The, the goal yeah. was, and this was. This came from my brother Steve. He's like, let's just make it as realistic as possible. And so that was the goal. And what what is the most realistic thing is dealing with, you know, uh, instead of just shooting a body and having to drop and fade away, we wanted to make it as realistic as possible. Not the sake of violence, but just for the sake of reality. You know, it's like trying to get that. You know, you can't. Uh, we actually had a consultant from Soldier of Fortune, John Mullins, who was great. And he's like, you don't really know combat until you smell the, you know, smell what's going on and hear it and, you know, feel it. And so that kind of inspired us a bit. So we, it was, I still remember the day, though, when we got uh, the ghoul system in. Of course, you saw the shooting of the limb stuff. But when you're on the, the, on the, when the body falls down and you still shoot it and still reactive, I mean, that felt, really real it really brought a realism to me that you know never saw in a game before right because um, back then there was no location-based damage no there wasn't and that was a so that was a big first and, and the reactions to the body and i think the weapons we did a lot more with the weapon animations and i think you know like guys would be dancing and you know so we really took the animation as well to a new level but um it was also a soldier fortunes consultant john mullins we eventually turned into the main character uh, was coincidental because Soldier Fortune magazine gave us this consultant, and as we talked and worked with them, we just thought like you're like the guy, and and so we made him as he looked in Vietnam when he was a younger man. He he was in Vietnam, and so we actually took him on tour with us, and everybody was, like looking at like, where's John Mullins? I'm like, well, he's right there. And he's like, well, he looks like Papa Smurf, you know, but he's because he was just a an, an old, but he had a lot of knowledge, believe me. So that was a fun project, and I think. Uh, you know, I sometimes wish we would have continued it and then evolved it, of course, into a, a higher brow, you know, situation. But we definitely had the action. I think we had a lot of great uh, 
the weapons felt great. The multiplayer was a lot of fun. We had so much fun working on that game. It's always a good indicator for us when you're making games. When you your own, when you yourself are playing it, you can't stop. Heretic was like that. Soldier Fortune yeah. was definitely like that. Well, as Heretic is is probably closest to my heart as far as uh, the games that you guys have made over the years. But my personal opinion, I think I think the best game that you guys have done to date is, uh, and I haven't played Black Ops Cold War yet, but I think the best game you, that Raven's ever done is Star Wars Jedi Knight 2, Jedi Outcast. Uh, that game, I, I, I think a lot of people still regard it, maybe like kind of neck and neck with Knights of the Old Republic 1, as the mm-hmm. best Star Wars game ever made. So are, do you have any well, cool you. like behind-the-scenes stories with that? or, or And did you guys kind of know, well, at what point did you know you had something special with that game? Well, it was really a weird way to some unfolded you know, like you know we're with activision we're working on soldier fortune and stuff and then i get a call from my boss like hey would you want to work on star wars and i'm like we're like what you know one of the guys that uh, helped us work on it was he had a tattoo of darth vader he was and we we had, we had to call it rocky's pizza as a code name until we were we could we could uh <laughs> tell everybody in the company we had to keep it on the download until it got solidified but uh what we did is we because we again the ed tech was very important to us, the quick tech. I think we knew we had something special when uh, we did our first prototype and everyone just poured their heart and soul into it and we we had it to show it to Lucas and um, we had to impress them of course. So we had this yeah. you know, you landed in on a ship on a on a on a you know empire ship and there's reflections with all the you know stormtroopers walking and everything and it just had the vibe of of uh, Star Wars and they were just we had him hooked on and and then Mike Gumbelt, our he's been with us for you know 25 years now, but he did all of the, of the um, lightsaber stuff, all the battles and all the force chart, you know things. To this day, people are still playing it, and he's uh, really great at prototyping all that. And he just has a real passion. He's the one who nailed that whole combat system and all the uh, lightsabers and the force powers combined, and all the different you know balancing of the counterbalances of those. So. Yeah, we 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 knew it was special at the time. Though we only had eleven months to do it, so we felt pretty wow. good about the time we had and what we got done. Yeah, it was a it was a uh, labor of love for sure. I mean, we're big all big Star Wars and Star Trek fans because we did a Star Trek too. So I guess that's the exciting thing. You know, a lot of times people ask me over the years, like, aren't you you know you're doing these licensed projects? But to us, I don't care if it's original or licensed. There's always something fun to do and creative in there. And, you grow up having a passion for Star Wars and Star Trek. It's like a dream come true. So, um, you know, same as Call of Duty. It's just like awesome. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned Star Trek. It's uh, and that's exactly what I was going to bring up next. Is you guys have? I mean, that's you're in. If not, maybe even no other company. It might just be you guys of having worked on Star Wars and Star Trek, and you made a great game in each one because. Uh, Star Trek Voyager Elite Force, a first-person shooter in the Star Wars universe, also regarded as a fantastic game. Uh, so, yeah, where, does that come about the same way? Do you just, like, get a phone call yeah. from Activision saying they've got a, a line yeah. on, on the IP or what? Same thing, yeah. And it's just like, what? You know, so for fanboys like us, I mean... Like Eric Beesman and I went out to Lucas. I went like four times because they kept telling us they were going to take us to Walker, Firewatch, Walker Ranch. 
And the one time I don't go, I go to Skywalker Ranch. Um, so then with Star Trek, though, I got to go on the set of Voyager, which was pretty cool. And we got to go into Paramount, and they have this uh, room that you have white gloves, and you get to look at the original photos of everything. And so that was pretty cool. We got to see some of the stars in the commentary. But, uh, again, a passion project. And, again, the same crew. It's like Beesman. And, you know, my brother Steve was the leader on the Star Wars. Uh, Steve and Kevin Schiller. And, obviously, Mike Gummett was in there. And then uh, Beesman and Mike Gummett were um, kind of the leads of Star Trek. But they just had so many fanboys for both. Um, it was a, it was a no brainer for us, and we'll probably get to it to a minute. But then we have Marvel as well, so I don't know. You know, like I said, I, I've been fortunate to have all these opportunities to do original titles, but also all these amazing licenses we grew up with as kids and and love to death. Yeah, you guys have made uh, something of a specialty out of out of sort of taking up the mantle of great franchises and great IPs. I mean, you're doing it now with Black Ops Cold War. Hoping that's going to turn out great. I'll be getting to play that soon. And there's, you know, plus everything we've already said. Plus, I mean, Quake Four. You know, you t- you took on a yeah. Quake game uh, from ID, and, and then Wolfenstein as well. Yeah, you did. A, you did a, a sort of reboot, reimagining of sorts of that. So, is it like from a studio level? Is it pressure when you're doing those kinds of projects, like that that you're picking up? Uh, the mantle from someone else or is it just is it just invigorating that's it's very invigorating you know we like doing original uh, titles too like like singularity and so forth and and, and soldier of fortune but um this when you know you are tapped in and you have a passion for that license you just know you want to bring it to life the way you the way it makes you feel and we were fortunate that the people we had working at raven at those times when they came up were just tapped right into it. Like Dan Bondrack from Marvel, he was a huge, huge Marvel fan, and he showed it very well with all the all the Marvel titles we did. And uh, you know, my brother was a huge Star Wars fan and, and Star Trek. So I mean, we all grew up with that. So it was a no brainer for us. But there were franchises we turned down because we didn't feel like we had a connection to them. We always kind of tried to be strategic on which ones we picked. But um, we were lucky that some of these landed in our lap. I know that. When we became part of Activision, there were a lot of people who thought like, oh, you sold it all, you're this corporate thing. But I knew that we would have opportunities uh, that no one else could have if we were aligned with the right partner. And, and we turned out, that turned out to be hugely correct. So that was, that was our goal. What, what was an example or two of, of a, a franchise that you turned down? I probably shouldn't say. <laughs> but, Fair enough, know, I guess. You know what I'm saying? I'll probably have... Uh, there were some good ones. Believe me, there were good ones. There were good ones. But, you know, we, we connect well with uh, sci-fi, fantasy, and, um, you know, those are kind of our main, main, main ones. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned Marvel. I mean, you had uh, two, Marvel Ultimate Alliance and Wolverine as well. Like, with all yeah, well-regarded yeah. games. Yeah, just, uh, yeah. It's, it's been quite a, a run for you guys. The, the studio resume is just remarkably diverse and impressive uh it's mm-hmm. you know because for a while it was pretty much all shooters outside of the beginning with black crypt but but it's it is diversified quite a bit now um i did want to ask you too about uh about madison and being having a, a major 30 year old game studio in madison wisconsin is it i mean you and you've obviously you have a a great group of talent there at the studio with you some of them you mentioned that are still there to this day from the early days is it mm-hmm. 
is being in Madison a detriment to to recruitment, to recruitment, trying to bring people in, or is it kind of a bonus because it's like a cool college town with a lower cost of living than say California? Sort of curious how mm-hmm. how Madison itself has helped forge your studio's identity. Well, I think if you look, I mean, a lot of the Midwest studios have gone away over the years. Um, I think we've we've been a good destination for people. I think we're seeing a trend where a lot of people from maybe LA or or some of these areas where they can't afford to really raise a family have come to Madison, where for you know a reasonable amount of money you can have a nice yard and, and good schools. That's certainly some of it. But I also think because we're part of Activision and we're working on such great titles, that that's been a real negative uh, as well. Um, obviously, with COVID and working from home, it's proving that you know, there's other options potentially here. But um, it's uh, Madison has been in the number one best places to live many times in Money Magazine and some other places. It's got a great culture here. It's got the lakes. It's got the universities. It's got the state capital. Beautiful state altogether, you know, with uh, the, all the all the lakes and everything. So I think, you know, there's been some that haven't come because of the snow. And I get that. But um, we've not had trouble recruiting. And I think it's because of our 30 years. I think it's because of the titles we work on. And I think it's the culture that we've created. So uh, we feel really fortunate. Um, I, I have, we've not had trouble hiring at all. So uh, now 2010, you mentioned, you touched on Singularity a minute ago. So that was a game that was received pretty well critically. As I recall, it didn't seem to get like a huge marketing push, but it was after that that, that you guys went into full uh, Call of Duty mode for the next decade. Yeah. And now, uh, with of course Black Ops Cold War, you are you are back out in front and leading development on that campaign now. And again, I'm not I'm not uh, saying anything negative about support work, but it, I mean, has it is it how have you guys kind of missed being back in the driver's seat? I'm sort of curious how. Or I guess maybe to spin it a more optimistic way, is it is there like a an increased a palpable energy at the studio now that your name's going to be back on the front of the box as the lead developer. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the Singularity piece, we were working on Wolverine movies, Singularity, and Wolfenstein all at the same time, and they're all coming along quite well. But, you know, if you remember, the economy took a big dive. That's, yeah. the, that's, the, big, that's the big factor. And I think at the time, you know, uh, you know, Activision had to choose, you know, where the marketing would go. And, and we were a, a new title and I think a good title. And I think it proved out in the reviews and so forth. Um, still get a lot of requests for Heretic, uh, Hexen, and Singularity and Soldier of Fortune are the ones we get the most for. But um, no, we we um, we worked with IW a lot back then. We knew them. They were good, they were good sister studios. And um, we were, we thought, well, that's how the, that's what the, you know, again, we're around today because we adapt and we move. And if you, I think that's our thing. We have a depth and breadth of talent with, we can do, you know, uh, console, PC, shooters, RPGs, you know, we got, we, we got a lot of, you know, knowledge behind us. So for us, it was like, just, okay, this makes sense. The economy has changed the marketplace. So we got to change with it. And we were fortunate enough that we were able to, you know, dive in with Treyarch on, on Black Ops that really helped them begin their, you know, cut our teeth on, on, on Call of Duty. And um, we have had a lot of fun working with the other studios. And we've done pretty much every piece of, of uh, Call of Duty you can. We've done MP and campaigns and we've done zombies and we've done lots. And, 
And every year it's a little different and different, you know, I, creativity comes within, you know, boundaries. So it doesn't matter if you're doing, you know, Call of Duty or Exxon or Heretic. The fun part is being creative. And, and you know, it's also nice to uh, work collaboratively with, I mean, I think it's another one of our key successes. We've been great collaborator, collaborators with ID and Marvel and Paramount and Lucas. And, you know, that's, maybe that's the Midwest nice part of us. but. Um, we're, we're pretty humble and we just love working on creative things with great people. I mean, I always used to be a high school art teacher and coach and I just I didn't come into this to make a lot of money and to be famous. I came into it because I love being excited to come to work every day and being creative and being around creative people. It's very, you know, it keeps you young. You know, you see all these you know, new people coming in, they got new ideas and they have new uh, ways to look at things and it just keeps making the games feel fresh no matter what you're doing. But, you know, whether you're doing, uh, Black Ops or, you know, Advanced Warfare or, you know, uh, Modern Warfare, it's all it's all fun. And, of course, from Soldier of Fortune, we have a lot of that military in our, our blood as well. So it's all been sure. kind of great. So what was what was the reaction uh, at the studio when when you guys announced to the team that you would be the lead developer on Black Ops Cold War? Oh, it's been great. I mean, you know, uh, obviously we've been on a lot of great projects and got we've gotten some great credits, but this is our first time. I mean, we're also working on Warzone, uh, so that's been a lot of fun. So we've kind of got two main thrusts. So it's kind of neat being on the cutting edge edge with Warzone, the first free to play Call of Duty, and then how nicely it ties into the, the premiums that we're working on. But um, Treyarch's a great partners to work with. We've always loved working with them as as well as IW, of course, and everything. But um, no, this has been uh, a dream come true, and you know I feel like we've executed it really well. Dan Vondrick, our creative director, who did Marvel Ultimate Alliance and all the, has been the, the big creative director, um, and a lot of the Call of Duty stuff that we've done for everybody. Ian Eric Beesman, and um, this has been a passion for him. He he came up with this story a, a, a few years back, and Eric uh, agreed, and here we are. So we've been I can't wait to let the world see it. So before I let you go, Brian, I, I got to ask, can we expect more Raven-led projects moving forward, be it in the Call of Duty universe or other things? I'm sort of curious, has, has uh, Black Ops Cold War changed the trajectory of, of the studio at all moving forward? Well, we certainly hope so. I mean, I, I believe this will be successful. I, I feel like, uh, you know, I can't talk about future work, but uh, there, are, there are always uh, opportunities for us. So keep an eye out. Well, you're tempting fate because Black Ops Cold War <laughs> is out on Friday the 13th, <laughs> November 13th, 2020. But uh, yeah, can't wait to play it. Brian, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I think thanks for all the, the great questions. Brings back a lot of memories I kind of had stored away in the background. So it's good to relive them. Oh, you're, uh, you're making my day with this one because, like I said, I've been, been a fan of the studio for a long time. So. Ryan Raffle, co-founder of Raven Software, celebrating its 30th anniversary this year, and they'll be celebrating it with Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, which they are the lead developer on with the single-player campaign. Play it on pretty much every platform on November 13th. For more with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry, check back every month on IGN for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I am Kristen Russo. And together, we run Buffering, a rewatch adventure. 
a family of podcasts moving through our favorite 90s genre television. If you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, great news for you. Our very first podcast adventure took us through all seven seasons of the series. We covered it spoiler-free, episode by episode. For those of you who want to start the show for the first time, you can find that podcast pretty easily. It's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Inside that podcast, you'll also find an original song that pairs with each glorious episode of Buffy and original character jingles for so many of our Buffy favorites. Buffering has been praised in places like Time, Esquire, Paste Magazine, and the New York Times, and we've chatted with dozens of cast members, writers, directors, and fans along the way. Come hang out and rewatch some of your favorite television with us and a wonderful community of listeners. Learn more at BufferingCast.com or find us on socials at BufferingCast.